Hello, welcome to episode five of The War Pod, the official podcast of the Remote Warfare Program, a London-based research initiative focusing on remote warfare, the trend where states support local and regional forces on the front lines rather than deploying large numbers of their own troops. The Remote Warfare Program is part of the Oxford Research Group, a peace and security think tank. I'm Abigail Watson, and I will be joined by my colleague Liam Walpole and Dr Jamie Gascar from the University of Birmingham to discuss how to understand and enable accountability over more secretive elements of the UK's defence and security sector, including intelligence agencies and special forces. Okay. Thank you both for joining. So maybe it would be good to start by just introducing yourselves and your relationship with the topic. Who's going first? Me. Yeah, you I've can started go first. talking. <laughs> uh, okay, so yeah, I mean we're interested in sort of accountability around specifically the role of Britain's special forces, and we led on a, a policy report last year, April 2018, on sort of exploring not only how a system could be put in place in Parliament by overseeing the role of special forces or policy associated with, associated with special forces, but also whether there are any other examples um, of Western countries, UK's allies, partners that also have um, parliamentary oversight. So just quickly, um, the countries that looked at was the United States that has a fairly robust, um, in comparison to other countries, robust system of oversight, quite, quite well established. Um, we looked at Denmark. Norway and also France um, as a comparison um, where lots of, interestingly France is a country that lots of um, British service personnel, British politicians often say well well, the French don't do it that way, we're a similar country to the French so why should we do it and actually it's interesting to see that uh, there was quite a bit of um, oversight within Parliament um, and the Director of French Special Forces coming before a committee in Parliament to actually give sort of sketchy details admittedly but um, did talk about the role of uh, French Special Forces. So yeah. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> and I'm uh, Jamie Gascarth. Um, my research has always been interested in how people make decisions and how you can hold them accountable for it really. Particularly how you can try and encourage people to make better decisions, more ethical uh, decisions. Um, and what really interested me about this project leading up to this book um, was trying to explore this problem of how do you hold people accountable when you don't know what they're up to. Mm. Now, yeah. at some point, <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> yeah, some institutional mechanisms are there um, to have oversight, which is usually framed in this way as some sort of detached observer popping in on a short-term basis, trying to get a, a flavour of a complex organisation and then going away again. And yeah. you kind of think, you know, you've got thousands of personnel working for these organisations, really complex technologies they're using, uh, and they're operating all over the globe, this seemed to be kind of really difficult. So it's a policy problem that I kind of wanted to engage with. And I think that leads quite nicely on to a sort of secondary question, is how do we understand accountability and how does that understanding shift when we're thinking about more secretive elements of the UK's defence sector? Certainly in our own work, we've often come up against what accountability means when inevitably you're not going to have full transparency yeah. and accountability and you probably shouldn't. So I guess it, it's interesting to to get your two's thoughts on how, when it's around a more secretive element of the security and defence sector, how that changes our understanding of what accountability is. 
Yeah, I think that's a, a really good point. And I'll sort of talk about that perhaps from a less academic perspective. Um, but I think it speaks to some of the points that Jamie was saying there in terms of accountability is important over our armed forces because of the roles that they're being tasked with and they're often part of a broader strategy um, and a, a political uh, effort. Um, it is policy by, by other means, of course, um, and you, you have to understand why certain elements of our armed forces are being used. Are they being used effectively? Uh, why are they being used in the first place? Um, and I think you know, the, 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 one of the arguments that we come up against when it comes to Britain's special forces is actually they're not any different from the rest of the armed forces. They are just soldiers. Yes, of course, they're incredibly well trained. They have different equipment that perhaps other elements of the armed forces don't have. But actually, they're just soldiers. Um, and of course, there, there are going to be occasions where having plausible deniability might benefit the UK's national security. But I think something that we were looking at is that when it comes to the UK's intelligence agencies, which many people we have interviewed and spoke, spoken to as part of our research, is much more secretive than what special forces are doing and yet there isn't a committee to oversee what special forces are doing and it just seems incredible that we've sort of come uh, this has come about and I imagine it'd be interesting to, to again to hear James thoughts and why that that might be but I imagine it's because there have been a number of scandals that took place and the government felt propelled uh, to introduce oversight back in the, the 1990s and that hasn't necessarily happened in the same way with special forces. And one of the things we argue in our policy report is that we, we should avoid scandal-driven reform and actually this is a good idea. It works in the United States, it works in other countries, accountability is important and also it can be done in a way that's not go that where, where the government is not going to lose sort of that prerogative of control that it quite enjoys. Well, there's, yeah, I, I think there's some really interesting links here between the civilian and the, and the military aspects mm. of, of accountability and how it relates to intelligence. I mean, there's a couple of things there. One of the things about the, the, the move towards legislation, when I speak to people who are uh, working in the security service or in the intelligence service during that transition, they say they welcomed legislation, mm. they wanted it because it gives them cover. You can get... Now, under the, uh, the Intelligence Services Act 1994, you can uh, operate within a clear legislative framework where mm. you get authorization from a minister and then you've got legal cover. And yeah. it's the minister that is the point of responsibility. So, and the Security Services Act 1989. Um, so, there's that element of it, them perceiving it as in their own self interest um, and therefore they're wanting to. And it also, the way the, the Act was framed is it gives a lot of leeway in terms mm -hmm. of what you so there's that element of them liking accountability. Um, but one of the other the kind of links that I kind of thought was interesting was when you actually speak to people about what does accountability mean, yeah. that formal framework is quite in the background in some ways. And on a day-to-day -day basis, what keeps you honest? What keep, makes you want to be effective? What makes you think about what is appropriate, what is ethical? Mm -hmm. Those kind of questions. Um, in the book, I talk about this being, there being a formal kind of form of accountability linked to oversight. But then there's this other types of account, there are other types of accountability. There's task-oriented accountability, where when something occurs, if it goes wrong or right, everybody galvanizes, gets around, mm -hmm. thinks about solutions, and then talks about it. So there's a lot of account giving yeah. 
you start to move away from just accountability being a negative yes. external thing and it's much more about you know everybody giving accounts of their behaviour thinking about mm-hmm. interpreting about what's going on and you get a lot of that with special forces obviously when something Entep raid or yeah. Romanian embassy siege when something goes yeah. right everybody yeah. wants to talk about how did that go right Absolutely. and then when it goes wrong the Iranian hostage mm-hmm. crisis you know, and yeah, yeah. The, the failed attempt to, to rescue them under the Carter administration mm-hmm. everybody wants to talk about why it went wrong so that's a kind of yeah. accountability but it's internal largely you know the only external element is talking with your liaison mm-hmm. partners maybe so it's difficult for us as external people to yeah. kind of work out well yeah. how does that accountability work are people held to account for their failures you know and, and how does that kind of shape the behavior of organizations yeah and th- th- that kind of links with the third aspect which is a bit jargony, but like sort of vernacular <laughs> accountability. But it's kind of you know the everyday conversations that we have about what's appropriate um, mm-hmm. uh, and the the accounts people give between themselves internally within the organisation or to their partners. Uh, and again, that kind of stuff's going to be going on yeah. in special forces. Uh, but I, I think just to pick up on your point there as well about. The fact that this can some when uh, um, deployments arise. So you mentioned the 1980 Iranian embassy hostage uh, case, with where special forces went in in Kensington, the embassy in Kensington, and rescued a number of hostages. It, it's interesting that you often have, when it comes to non-special forces cases, the same sort of uh, rally round with the defence committee. So I'm thinking about, for example, the debate around the Royal Marines. Um, back in November 2018 when it was suggested that they that their numbers might be cut. You know, the Defence Committee was very hot on that and they sort of came round and said, no, this is not right, it's not a good thing for Special Forces. That's not a good thing for, for Royal Marines. And actually, seemingly, not potentially very good for Special Forces either because so many of Special Forces recruits come from the Royal Marines. Um, and I, I, it, it just feels strange that there isn't... It, it's always framed as a very negative thing going back to that point you raised as well, having oversight. You know, oversight is about restraint. It's about constraining sort of the operational effectiveness and maneuverability of our forces. And in fact, it's not. It's about making sure that spending commitments are right. We know, for example, recently that special forces are being set for a new task, new tasks in response to grey zone warfare across Eastern Europe. Well, where, where's that come from? It's not mentioned yeah. in the mobilising defence uh, program report back in December 2018. Where's and the money? Yeah, coming from? and I think that speak, speaks to a, uh, another problem, which is this assumption that we can maintain secrecy, mm. Mm. that it's something that we can control. We can control, so we can release a bit there and a bit there, yeah. and maybe discuss that bit that we want to discuss. But that's not the case anymore. Like in an information age where everyone has access to, to yeah, yeah, yeah. the internet and there's pictures of conflict zones all over the world it's understanding that planning missions on the basis of them maintaining complete secrecy is an outdated policy Mm -hmm. in the first place and so using this fact that already exists to have not just the daily mail publishing stories about special forces but making it into a useful conversation about how and why we're using them and whether they are being used in an ethical and effective way is really important. Mm. And I think just on that as well, the, the fact that this um, plans for special forces to be deployed in response to grey zone warfare uh, in Eastern Europe was reported in the media but has not been able to be addressed in Parliament by a committee just seems absolutely ridiculous. You know, how can you have sort of, you're sort of 
giving a, an opportunity for a bit of public debate about speculation, which can be damaging as well, um, but not allowing a committee within Parliament to, to assess this or, or review it. It just seems absolutely nonsensical. I mean, it would be good to draw on your perspectives of how that shift has happened with intelligence agencies. The, there, There is that. Is there a feeling among practitioners that the system that is they have now is effective in addressing some of the dangers that we highlight with special forces in the sense that are they allowing agents to be effective and ethical in their decisions? Mm-hmm. It's... It's difficult for me to judge. I can talk about the narrative I get from the people I yeah, speak yeah, to. Yeah. But I always say it, it's tricky. I mean, if you were interviewing somebody from the Catholic Church or all day in hospital or somewhere that's had a scandal, you know, mm. uh, and asked them if things were going right the day before the scandal broke, they'd be saying the procedures in place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do. yeah. You know, uh, the sense is broadly that it's seen as constructive. Um, one of the key aspects of the accountability regime, as was sort of at least prior to 2013, is there wasn't too much grandstanding. There was a very rare, there was one instance of a leak in the late 90s with the Metrokin uh, archive, and that was kind of clamped down on very heavily with uh, you know, the person who leaked it. Was, you know, and the, uh, the chair of the committee embarrassingly kind of apologised to the agencies. But other than that, it's not been like some of those US congressional committees yeah. where you're trying to headhunt and take down a political figure for a failure. You know, you wouldn't take down William Hague for what happened in <laughs> Libya or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, because of that, it seems constructive. Um, it's interesting, I wonder whether that's sustainable, I don't know yet, but the ISC, the Intelligence and Security Committee, the Parliamentary Committee, which obviously oversees the Intelligence and Security Services, that has been much more critical in the last few years. So since yeah. 2013, you had the, you know, the report on the Woolwich murders of Lee Rigby, you know, and there were elements of criticism there. They stepped up the rhetoric on the London and Westminster attacks and some discussion there. It's still couched in quite diplomatic language, but underneath it all, they're saying that there were errors here. Uh, in fact, some of the most negative comments, actually, you probably haven't come from the IFC, there's been some of these inquest um, comments from in, into the 7-7 attacks and then more recently. You know, there's been some reporting which has been saying there were errors here. You know, this is not just normal kind of practice that sometimes things go wrong sometimes they go right that actually these are systems that need to change yeah but um, your own the your interviewees seemed quite positive about the IEC. Yeah. they were because i think like i said they don't think it's a grandstanding committee they think it gives constructive advice oh okay so um, even though yeah. there were criticisms there was a feeling that they criticise where they need to, they defend where they need to. Yeah, I think that, I think that's broadly the case. But I just wonder whether, you know, as things move into... Because the IC got more powers, uh, particularly after uh, sort of 2013 and with the Justice and Security Act and then in 2016, the yeah. Investigatory Powers Bill. So it's it's moved away from just being a prime ministerial appointment and things like that, but it's a parliamentary uh, committee and it can investigate with more thoroughness and it's got more budget. Um, and it's got a little bit more independence. And so, it, it, you know, there's potential there for it in the future. It could go in a more critical light, then maybe these services would start to think this is less a... There's always this tension, and I think Richard Aldrich coined a phrase about that. Um, you know, is it a watchdog or a cheerleader? Yeah. And it's both, isn't it? The yeah, yeah, yeah. It's supposed to say, oh, no, you know, this is acceptable behaviour and this is normal that certain intelligence services capture bulk data of all your 
communications and, and then search it uh, anonymously. Um, so there's kind of that kind of chilling development that this is what we need to fight terrorism. Then it's supposed to be a watchdog element of are they are, are these things going too far? So I, you know, I think at times that's very difficult. I think there have been very high profile issues where they probably the line's been been too far along the cheerleader line. If you think about the revelations that eventually they came to about the treatment of detainees, you know, and uh, 128 incidents where agency officers were told by foreign liaison services that there was being detainee mistreatment. You know, that's a lot of occasions yeah. where the, the services were aware of mistreatment of detainees and they weren't acting upon it. Um, so those kinds of things, I think, you know, uh, the IFC has currently learned from the mistakes of the early 2000s where they just accepted at face value what they were being told. Yeah, and I, I, I'd also like to draw out your thoughts on some of the other um, wielders of power, I don't know what to call this, mm. but um, first of all, ministers and where they fit within this. You said that there's, when you were speaking to practitioners, there's both this idea that um, accountability is to do with following orders, but then also you said that there's often an asymmetry in the information that officials have versus ministers. Yeah. It's quite interesting, especially in our own work, Liam, it'd be good mm. to get your thoughts on this as well, where ministers fit into what are quite tactical and technical activities. Yeah, I think just sort of on the specific point of special forces and, and the argument that is, is put to us in terms of, well, there is accountability because ministers come before the defence committee and there have, there's been one occasion as far as I'm aware um, where uh, the defence committee, the chair of the defence committee, Julie Lewis, questioned former defence secretary Sir Michael Fallon about special forces, he was very reticent about giving any details and said that actually that you know the scrutiny gap um, is there to, to protect special forces and he made the case that he was there in front of the committee you know giving evidence and was therefore you know, there was some form of accountability of special forces but when it comes to the role of special forces in Syria and Iraq when MPs have asked questions the ministers at the dispatch box just completely def deflect them. When it, there was the uh, allegations, credible allegations about special forces being deployed in Yemen back in March 2019, ministers deflected those questions, even though there was a lot of outrage among some senior parliamentarians like Andrew Mitchell. Um, so I th feel like that when it comes to accountability through ministers, it's always very uh, challenging to make sure that, that it's not just simply sort of the rubber stamp. And I think on one, one area that we're looking at in terms of OSGE, this over the a tool that is used by government when it is deciding whether to provide justice or security assistance. Um, there are, the name. Yeah, Overseas Justice and Security yes, Assistance. The um, <laughs> system. Uh, there is a certain set of criteria um, and different risk categories and if it is deemed to be of high risk when it comes to reputational political risks or uh, of human rights abuses or IHO abuses um, being committed um, by a partner that's receiving uh, uh, aid from or support from the UK government that it would then go to a minister but you know how far is it that the officials would just give advice and guidance and the minister is then actually just going to rubber stamp it and say that's fine rather than interrogating yeah that Austria and of course there is there is hardly any accountability of of the Austria process something that's been um, addressed or at least explored by the Joint Committee on National Security Strategy in recent months um, there is very limited accountability of, of, of this process and something that ICAI, the 
independent committee on aid impact uh, report of the conflict security and stability fund has also criticised the, the lack of transparency and also the effectiveness of um, the way in which assessments are done and mitigation is put in place as required, or at least is meant to be required through the OSTIA process as well. So I think, you know, accountability, yeah, of course, but very indirect and perhaps not direct enough. I think there's, yeah, a couple of things. So why do you want to, your activities to be secret? Mm. And what aspects need to be secret and what yeah. can be public? Yeah. So I think what those, some of the reports the Oxford Research Group has done recently have been brilliant about talking about strategy making. You know, mm. if it's going to be a, a rigorous process, it needs to be open up to wider um, ideas yeah. internally within Whitehall, but then also perhaps externally with people saying what kind of a special forces strategy is appropriate for which situations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're not having that open dialogue. You know, it's going to be much more difficult yeah. to be access ideas and be creative and then also challenge ideas that may be wrong. So there's that. Exactly. I think one of the things in the book I tried to do was uh, Secrets and Spies, by the way, Brookings Institution, that's <laughs> coming out at the end of the year. <laughs> <laughs> at least we got it in there eventually. Yeah. <laughs> um, is that accountability is actually supposed to be a positive process. Yes. You know, it's, too, it's too easy to kind of just see accountability as a negative mm-hmm. and something, you know, being slapped on the wrist and told where you've gone wrong. But actually, account giving is a really yeah. important way of you reflecting on your own performance. So some of you're talking there about, you know, it's actually a positive to think about ways of encouraging people to give accounts of what they're up to so that they can challenge their own assumptions, open themselves up to new ideas and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. You, might, you, you don't necessarily want your specific techniques that you're using, other mm-hmm. than, you, know, you don't want your opponent to be privy to them. Yeah. But your broad strategy of when is it appropriate to deploy special forces, why are you deploying mm-hmm. them in this situation is important. And the stuff, the two other kind of things I think you're I'm talking about your report now. It's always good to remind you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. okay. the, you know, the, the, the fact that uh, there are more people involved in this now, so that's, it's a bit less special. It's, yeah, 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 yeah. it's actually quite substantive numbers of armed forces are now being allocated to that kind of special mm-hmm. role. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's yeah. really important. Um, uh, and also the, the kind of the classic problem of you're putting troops in harm's way that could have a, a repercussions if you then have to rescue them. Yeah. You know, so yeah. then you end up with more troops Absolutely. in reinforcing failure and you can end up with quite a large commitment from yeah. that then end yeah. I think it's quite interesting as well. There's there's been uh, reports in the media in the last couple of days about the Royal Marines seizing this um, tanker in Gibraltar. Yeah. Uh, and there's claims, um, one of the, the crew has come out saying that the Royal Marines had used excessive force. Um, and I wonder if it, I don't know whether it is the Special Boat Service rather than Royal Marines and they're just reporting that it's the Royal Marines, I don't know. But I, I wonder whether if it had been the Special Boat Service that, that had seized that tanker, where there will be a complete sort of blackout on any accountability of, of what happened. Whereas I feel like also it speaks to a point that we come against when we speak to Royal Marines, is a frustration that the same accountability mechanisms don't apply to Special Forces soldiers, but applies to them. And of course they are still regarded alongside sort of the parachute regiment as sort of elite forces, whatever that means. Um, and yet Special Forces have this blanket opacity over them and they're not subject to the same accountability mechanism. So I want that there's definitely like a tension there um, between you know, different units within 
um, the armed forces as well, which I think is is an issue. Yeah, and I'm just picking up on that is is one of these this link with the intelligence services. So increasingly, you've got teams of special forces mm. working with mm. absolutely uh, intelligence service, um, and so if something does go wrong or, or any of those kind of issues, you know. The ISC is it excluded from investigating yeah. this just yeah. because there is a special forces element mm-hmm. to it, even if there is involvement of MS6, there's grey areas there, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, I guess this sort of links to the second wielder of power. I really hate that term. Um, <laughs> which would be the public. In your book, you, you said that some of the interviewees were quite positive about the idea of the public being more engaged in... Um, in the accountability mechanisms. Do you want to just outline that and then describe why you think that might be? Yeah, well, I, I, th- I think uh, there's a couple of elements to this. I mean, uh, I think they are, well, some certainly are open to the public having involvement in uh, dis- decisions about broad policy directions and ethical decisions because they think the public is more in tune with national security requirements than Liberty or Big Brother Watch or those sorts of things. So they think, if we ask the public, they'll be be on our side and therefore why not ask the public and then we've got that extra under cover. Um, That may not always be the case, but uh, I think that's an interesting viewpoint. But I I thought, I mean, the reason why I I was interested in in greater public involvement is actually my first job after I'd finished my PhD was on health research ethics committees as part of the Department of Health. So there you have lay people who volunteer and they uh, have, are given information about clinical trials and they decide whether it's appropriate to proceed or not. So this is complex medical procedures in some cases, mm-hmm. you know, and yet lay people are having involvement there and they mm-hmm. are making decisions which then have an outcome in, in terms of the overall policy. And I always kind of thought, well, you know, actually this seems to be something that works quite well why couldn't that work in the intelligence realm? There's a whole bunch of questions around you know, uh, whether it's appropriate to, uh, how far it's appropriate to try and reprogram people out of extremist views, and how would you go about that? You know, how far is it appropriate to engage in bulk data capture and look at uh, you know, the mass of your population's emails, even if it's anonymous, you know, or the mass of their, sorry, their, their digital communications? Because you know, uh, if the public are supportive of this and you, you can demonstrate that, then that's good. And then if the public decides that this isn't something they don't want to continue with, then it can stop. So it's a kind yeah. of important break there. Uh, and so that was one of my recommendations: was why not have intelligence ethics committees? You know, where some of these difficult questions, when technology comes in, you have lay people having involvement in the decision-making process. And weirdly, as I said, you know, the, some of the heads, former heads of agencies and things, were quite attuned to this. Because I also think there's like a secondary element to that which also came up in your book, which was the idea that for the public to engage, perhaps they have to understand more about what are quite complex activities that intelligence agencies do. How do you think that would fit in with this sort of second, this idea? Yeah, so um, do you think uh, in terms of, you know, are you opening yourself up to leaks and, and that kind of thing? Yeah, or, or in general, I wonder how effective public engagement can be without a greater understanding of what intelligence agencies do. I, I worry, especially with Special Forces, and Liam, feel free to jump in on this, mm-hmm. how much UK engagement with these activities is 
based on Daily Mail headlines rather than understanding some of the stuff that we cover around them holding a, a larger role mm-hmm. in, in some of these activities abroad and what that can mean for accountability and transparency of the UK forces more generally, how much that affects um, a useful public debate. Yeah, I mean, I think, and Jamie, feel free to you know, chip in, but I, I feel like there is something that we, when we speak to, and we have, uh, former director of special forces, a lot, one of the, the leading arguments they make is that the myth around special forces is so incredibly strong that that actually protects the work that they do and gives them that sort of enjoyable sense of cover uh, <laughs> that they can you know just get on with their work without having to worry so much about the the accountability in parliament or and MPs asking you know substantial number of questions about what they're doing and I think that myth has fed into the public perceptions of what special forces do and that no we definitely shouldn't have any oversight of them um, but of course they still they have a very different as is the case with the United States in the UK they have a very different perception of sort of regular deployments of troops because that has been much more in in the public domain so would they have a more critical view of what special forces are doing or have done if that was also part of the public domain and would that be going back to your point earlier Jamie would that be of benefit in improving how they're used, why they're deployed, and everything else. Um, and going back, I just want to quickly chip in a couple of points that, that you raise about the, um, the the public sort of having a role when it comes to the intelligence agencies. Um, that in Canada they've launched this new National Security Advisory Committee um, to have a, a, a formal group of external experts and advisors contribute towards. Um, national security decisions and policy making and similarly in the UK uh, as part of the one of the very few things that came out of the modernising defence <laughs> programme report there was a lot of uh, nice pictures, yeah, lovely pictures uh, was this idea of having a defence policy board which is a similar kind of thing to the, to the National Security Advisory Committee in, in Canada that would provide an external um, resource for MOD when it comes to policy and strategy making and something that we have advocated for and recommended is that the National Security Council also opens up a bit more yeah, to that sort yeah. of scrutiny. But it's um, important to know, I don't know about the Canadian example, but with the the Defence Board, that would be experts rather than It would, than just yes, not just like, members of... Well, as far as we're aware, because we don't actually know yeah. what the membership of the NDP is going to, uh, going to be, sorry, the MPB, um, is going to be as yet. But I think there is definitely a recognition post-Chilcot that there needs to be broader debate yeah. um, about what's going on around national security issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of things I kind of uh, pick up on. One of the things that struck me in the, in the book when I was reading all these accountability reports is the stuff that doesn't get talked about, and you kind of think, why wasn't that an issue that people were held accountable for? Yeah. You know, when in 2006, when the UK goes into Afghanistan in substantial numbers for the second time as part of this agreed deployment, you know that they immediately faced a very strong Taliban insurgency, you yeah. know, um, and they were really kind of playing catch-up from that moment on for, for a good couple of years, um, trying and failing in various different ways. You know, Theo Farrell talks about it in an article as an extraordinary intelligence failure, because there's been a lot of warning about this before. The US ambassador in Kabul, the commander of the Combined Forces Command in Afghanistan, was saying an insurgency is coming. 
there's an intelligence element there. You know, did SIS do the right intelligence mm-hmm. briefings and assessments beforehand? Were they given a chance to do it? Did they do it? Did they do it properly? You know, we, we can't really know yeah. because it's not, you know, I can surmise, but we don't know. And then there's an element of, well, did the, did the army respond to this? Did they actually kind of... Uh, yeah. Set their deployments right. Um, that's that seems to be you know catastrophic failure. You think about four hundred and fifty-one UK military and civilian lives were lost as a result of that campaign. Mm-hmm. So basically, mm-hmm. more people died in that than, yeah. than in Iraq. Um, and yet, you know, there's been no Afghanistan inquiry, um, and that was just seen as a failure, and uh, yeah, moved on. And there's a whole bunch of these where stuff happens. Mm. That seemed to me quite strongly intelligence focused, and a lot of defence element to this as well. Yeah. You know, Russia's behaviour mm-hmm. in Ukraine. You know, that, you know, was that a catastrophic intelligence failure? Mm-hmm. Can we not do anything about it? You know, the the decision for them to invade Crimea effectively and then exit. You know, the rise of Islamic State. You know, where was the? Yeah. You know, in the US, there has been some debate about was this an, an intelligence failure? Yeah. Are they relying too much on technology and remote? Technology, you know, and do they need more human intelligence sources? Mm. You know, which is the problem going into the Iraq War in two thousand and three. You know, this, these get no mentions, or yeah. almost no mentions in in the ISC report. I mean, the rise of the Arab Spring breaking out in two thousand and eleven. The head of GCHQ uh, says that they were drawing, pretty much drawing, comprehensively down their their surveillance operations in. That region, mm-hmm. right when the Arab Spring is breaking out. Now, how is that possible? Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. How can you not know yeah. that something's about to happen? You know, and surely from communications, there must have been some inkling, wasn't there? Or, you know, so why is you know this? It's interesting, you know, that it is very reactive. It's very much there's a scandal, and then grudgingly almost, eventually there's a report which is you know might highlight some errors, but. You know, meanwhile, there's a whole bunch of stuff actually uh, that are major defence and security risks that, for some reason, they just don't get the airtime. There's not a, a big um, uh, a dissection of it afterwards. I don't think you need the, the Chilcot report every time you, mm-hmm. you make an error because you don't want a 10 year process of, of kind of. Um, and the, the army's talking about being at this, but it needs to be much more of a learning organisation. You know, the US are very smart, but they make an initial mistake, and then there is quite an open process of self-criticism you know, yeah. through the US Marine yeah. Corps or their, you know, their major kind of uh, policy think tanks and stuff. And, and they learn quickly, and then they, they are much better. And, and, they, and the UK army is still dragging behind on this in terms of that. And it also, it forgets, yeah. doesn't yeah. it? So it, it, they do a successful operation. They build up a lot of expertise in peacekeeping, or mm-hmm. counterterrorism, or mm-hmm. counterinsurgency. And then... Years go by and that's all forgotten, and then they face an, a sim- another situation which you know yeah, yeah. Is, is almost as if this has never happened before. And it's like you've got 200 years of peacekeeping experience in yeah. empire, and then into the modern day, you knew what worked and what didn't in Northern Ireland and why. Um, and so, creating false analogies mm-hmm. saying this is just like Northern Ireland, when yeah. you should realize that actually Northern Ireland yeah, has yeah, yeah, distinct yeah. phases Operation Pattern, um, you know, that kind of stuff. Sorry, and, then, and I mean, how much do you think that the difference is because, I mean, if you see the type of critical analysis that takes place within Congress, with the committees, with personnel that have got military backgrounds as well, often, or backgrounds in other areas, uh, whether they've served in government posts prior to becoming sort of members of Congress, 
in comparison with the UK, I think there's around 54 members of parliament out of 650 that have got a military background, and the majority of them are Conservative MPs. Mm. Um, and also, that really, the committee system is very much sort of only uh, over the last, say, decade, become much more robust in the UK, given more power. So how far do you think that has an impact? And of course, the relationship between the legislature and the executive in the UK is very different as well, something that we came up across when we were looking at special forces oversight. How much do you think that has an impact on the way that government looks at these issues or the army, the, the military in the UK looks at these issues or the intelligence agencies look at these issues where they've got things wrong? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think they need to, they need to, uh, I think what, what concerns, what, what they're worried about is that the media will get hold of any self-critical report mm. and tear them to shreds each time. But if you create yeah. a culture where you take that initial hit and say, we're going to be much more open about our failures in order that we're going to succeed in the future. So yes, we yeah. did a self-critical report. Yes, those failures were made and this is how we changed it. Yeah. You know, and try and engage that. And eventually this thing gets neutralised a little bit, I think. Maybe I'm being a bit naive. <laughs> I don't think. You know, trying to kind of not have the conversation or keep it completely under wraps. Um, I think I think it's you're losing out on, on the, you know, a lot of interesting expertise yeah. and creativity. Yeah, agree. One thing I, I was just gonna sorry, Abby, one thing I was just gonna, just gonna say quickly is that and you can speak to it as well is that I think the UK military is trying to sort of move towards an approach taken in the US where they, they're sort of, they're not, failing doesn't mean that you can't progress yeah. in your career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, in the UK it seems like if you fail at something then, oh no, that's going to count against you in the future in terms of promotions. And I think that's something also that needs to be changed. Was that quick enough? Sorry. It was very quick. It was lovely. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think we're, we're, getting, we're getting on now. I yeah, think we should yeah. start to wind down. Sure. So thank you very much. Does anyone want to say any final words? Last yeah. chance. Accountability is great. <laughs> it can be really positive. It can be positive. You know, that's it. Yeah, it's about philosophers, the empiricists believe from the Enlightenment that accountability, policy reviews, and everything else is really positive for positive policy change. So okay. I think that's uh, something we should recognise. Well, thank you, both of you, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. For those who want to read in more depth about the topics we covered, we put links to any research or publications that we've mentioned in the episode notes. And please look out for Jamie's book, which is called... Secrets and Spies, UK Intelligence Accountability After Iraq and <laughs> And if you want to stay up to date with Remote Warfare Programme and the Oxford Research Group's work, please subscribe to our newsletter by clicking the button at the top of the page. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handles are at orginfo and at remote underscore warfare you can listen to all previous episodes of our podcast free of charge by following the link at the top of the page we look forward to joining you again soon